Hey, I just want to say thank you for checking out this message today. I hope that it helps you, that it encourages you, and that you are able to learn a little bit more about who God is and why so many people throughout history have chosen to become followers of Jesus. If you enjoy this message and you want to hear more, you can find us on Facebook or YouTube, but ultimately you can find everything you need to know at clcwinnipeg.ca. There you can find more messages, you can find our social handles, ways to get connected to our church, and if you would like to give to this ministry, you can do that as well. And like I said before, I hope that you are encouraged by the message you're about to hear. God bless you. Today I want to tell you a story that I actually read uh, in the BBC this week. The story was about a lady named Pauline. And Pauline had like an interesting childhood. So her mother Ruth and her biological father, they split when she was pretty young. And so when that happened, when that happened, things got weird after that. There, her childhood always felt a little strange back in the 70s. For example, one time they went on vacation and they were living in Vancouver and they went to Winnipeg. And uh, after they got to Winnipeg for vacation, Pauline's mom said, you know, what? we're actually just going to stay here. We're going to live here. And they're like, what? Why? <laughs> Why would we move to Winnipeg? And her mom was just like, I actually can't tell you. Uh, when you're older, I'll tell you why. She's like, okay, so they lived in Winnipeg. And it was fairly normal until a little while later, they did the same thing moving to New Brunswick. And again, their mom was like, I can't tell you, but I'll tell you one day. And so Pauline had this interesting childhood where just things that were strange would happen. Every once in a while, they would kind of go on the run and they didn't really know what the deal was. But one thing she did know was that there was another man named Stan and he would always move with them. He wasn't with her mother, but he was always there when they moved. And Pauline was never told what was going on until she was a young adult. And then her mother and Stan sat her down and, and they told her what had been happening. They told her that Pauline's biological father had actually been involved with the mafia and Stan had counseled another mafia member and the mafia found out that Stan had been counseling him about how to get out of their organization and they didn't like that and they thought he was going to know too much. So he became a target. And then Stan ended up telling Pauline's mom, Ruth, about this situation and then the mafia found out that she knew too much. And all of a sudden their family was in danger from this organized crime group. And so for Pauline, that explained all kinds of things that she had seen her mom do growing up. Just things that were weird and a little, a little off base. Like she would come home and she would rapidly throw out all of the, everything that was in the fridge. And her mom would say like, oh, things were just going bad. So I had to get rid of it. But Pauline would see her throw out things that were not as perishable, like ketchup and mustard and just condiments. And I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Those weren't going to go bad after just a few hours of the fridge not working. And she, she realized that her mom had been doing that because they had heard that somebody had been trying to poison them. So they just got rid of all the food in the house. 
there was all kinds of things that they would have to do throughout their childhood that just made no sense at all. And it was, they knew something was off. But then they found out that there was something under the surface. There was actually a motivation for all of these things. And all of a sudden it began to click into place like, oh, of course, that was because of this and because of this. And sometimes what's going on under the surface is revealed and we get a whole new perspective on what seems strange. Sometimes you think you know someone or you understand a situation and all of a sudden there's a twist that helps everything to click. And I hope that we can make some things click for us today as we look at one of the most confusing books of the Bible, Revelation. It's a book that reveals to us that not everything is as we think it is. So we're, we're on the last book of the Bible today, and we have something special planned with this one. See, last spring we started a series called Cover to Cover, where we, we determined that we would do a message from every single book of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. So we began in Genesis with a message that was delivered by Pastor Jim and myself as we wrestled with the first three chapters of Genesis and looked at the creation story of the Bible. And after that, we went all through the Bible, stopping in less known books like Obadiah and Haggai, took on the biggest books like Isaiah and the Psalms, went through the weird ones like Leviticus and Song of Songs. And today we reach the end. Today we are looking at Revelation. And I, I've, I've been telling pastors this week that like, oh, I'm talking about Revelation this week. And some of the reactions are like, oh, well, good luck. Or the other kind of common reaction on the flip side has been like, ah, I'm a little jealous. I wish I got to talk about that book because it really excites some people. And honestly, I was kind of in group one, kind of thinking like, this is going to take forever to figure out. I don't really want to do this. This book is confusing. There's a lot of weird imagery and I don't really know what my angle on Revelation is going to be. And you know what? It did take forever to figure it out. But this week I studied and I studied and I came to the conclusion that I can confidently say Jesus is going to be returning on April 27th of 2031. So get ready for the big day. You've got eight years. And I hope you know that this is a joke. Hopefully that's obvious. Because if you've ever been listening to somebody who makes the claim that they have figured out, they know exactly when Jesus is coming back. They found it in the book of Revelation. You can probably just exit that sermon or conversation. Because Jesus made it clear that nobody knows when he's coming back. So if they're claiming to know more than Jesus, that's a pretty quick way for them to lose their credibility. But seriously, here we are. I've got my angle narrowed down. So I hope that you're excited, or at least willing to get excited, because we've decided not to spend just one week on this book and then move on to something else. But we're actually going to talk about the book of Revelation throughout the rest of the month. And this book seems to describe the end of the world. I think that's why a lot of people get hung up on it. That's, that's a pretty, pretty not fun thing to talk about. It's called an apocalyptic book. That's kind of the genre of it. And when we think of the apocalypse, we think of books or movies that are showing the end of the world. Movies like Left Behind, which is actually based on Revelation, The Day After Tomorrow, or 2012. It's these stories where the world as we know it is coming to an end. 
And nobody ever sits down to watch these movies to get a warm, fuzzy feeling in front of the TV. No one thinks, I could really use a pick-me-up today. How about I watch a movie about the end of the world? And for some of us, this book evokes a similar feeling. I didn't like reading this book as a kid, and sometimes as an adult, because I don't want to have to think about the end of the world. For those of you who are newer to Christianity or to Revelation, here are some of the scary things that we find in this book. The Antichrist. A mysterious figure who many people will be deceived by. The mark of the beast. Something that Christians won't want, that will make it tough to live if we don't have it. The tribulation. Several years of hardship and persecution for Christians, as well as like natural disasters. The rapture. A day when all of the followers of Jesus will be taken into heaven. And Armageddon. A day where all of God's armies go and defeat the devil and all the powers of darkness here on the earth. These are all events that will take place throughout the book of Revelation. And a lot of us probably have a bit of an idea of how this might all play out in our heads from like reading the book or from fictionalized versions of it that have tried to make it into a story. But for me, thinking about all of this is honestly a bit scary. kind of keeps me up at night if I let it. And part of that might just be because I can't answer this question. What do I do when it's the end of the world? Seriously, what do we do? Do you ever think about what you're going to do if if an apocalyptic event would take place? Would we try to bunker down? Would we have to face a ton of persecution? Would we get taken up into heaven and hopefully avoid all of it? Do you ever doubt if maybe you would even be worthy of being taken up to heaven? So many questions. Let's focus on that one. What do I do when the events of Revelation begin? It seems like at some point the events of Revelation are going to start. And we might have a chance of still being here on earth. There's a lot of perspectives on how that's going to all go down for Christians. Uh, These are referred to as like post or premillennial. But I I want us to, um, to narrow down this a little bit. But first, before we get to that, what even is this book about the end of the world? Who wrote it and why? Revelation was written by John, one of Jesus' disciples. We're pretty sure. And not just any disciple either. There's a really good argument to be made that John was basically Jesus' best friend here on earth. John wrote the Gospel of John. And in that book, he refers to himself not by name, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was really, really close with Jesus. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, John, like all of the other disciples, went to go tell people the good news about Jesus. He lived through Nero's reign. Nero was one of the most awful, despicable emperors of Rome because of the way he treated Christians. And it kept getting worse after that when Domitian became emperor. He was an insecure man, and he made the decision to have every Roman citizen mandated to come to a place of worship, grab a little bit of incense, And then they would have to sprinkle it on an altar and declare Kaiser Curios, which basically meant Caesar is Lord. Now, for a lot of Romans, this was a pretty easy task. Most of them believed in a lot of gods anyways, like Zeus and Aphrodite and Artemis. So what was one more? But for a man like John, this was trouble because he respected Caesar. He paid taxes to Caesar, but he could not worship Caesar. 
He refused to declare anyone other than Jesus as Lord. So legend has it that Romans actually found this out, and they ended up throwing John into a pot of boiling oil. But that didn't harm him. So instead of having to deal with the fact that they might not be able to kill him, they exiled him to the prison island called Patmos. And so in Revelation 1 verse 10, he writes, It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches. So there on Patmos, an 80-year-old John writes Revelation, the longest letter in the Bible, to the seven churches of ancient Asia. And take note, he was worshiping in the spirit, and behind him, he heard a voice. It's not in his head. It's not a hallucination. He wasn't tripping out on anything. He actually hears a voice behind him. And then this happens in verse 12. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. His face was like the sun in all its brilliance. And so begins the story of the apocalypse. This book is actually not just called Revelation. Its full title is The Revelation of Jesus. That basically means, well, the word of Revelation that's used here is actually another word for apocalypse. And people who spoke Greek would have understood that this didn't mean the end of the world at all. The meaning of apocalypse is actually to reveal something. It was to take something that was once hidden and to make it known. When Pauline in our opening story found out that her family was running away from the mafia, that would have been an apocalypse for her. Something was revealed to her that was once hidden. There's a few of these books in the Bible. Ezekiel and Daniel are two of the most popular books with apocalyptic writing. And honestly, these books are really weird. People are often described like animals. History is described as natural disasters, and colors and numbers all have all kinds of meaning. And in order to understand these books, especially Revelation, you have to understand the whole Bible. Revelation in particular references back to the Old Testament 500 times. That might help us to understand why this book is so confusing. If we don't understand the rest of the Bible, our chances of understanding Revelation go down really quickly. Because what we miss about Revelation is that this book is three things. One, it's a letter. Revelation was written by John, a pastor, to give a pastoral word to the churches he's pastoring. It's a prophecy. Revelation 1 verse 3 says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. It also happens to be the only book that is given a specific blessing to the reader. And while it does describe events that are going to come to pass, we have to understand that it is likely not completely literal. Apocalyptic books are poetic and descriptive, and John was probably doing his best to just help us capture our imaginations by writing what he saw. But it was likely him just doing his best to capture fantastic images. And he probably wasn't saying that everything was going to happen, because as you dig into it, you might begin to realize that the timeline of everything doesn't 100% make sense. There's a Canadian pastor named Daryl Johnson who wrote a book on Revelation, and he suggests that it might be more helpful for us to read each section of Revelation as though we're like peeking through a window. 
at one certain event, rather than watching a movie of everything happening in order. The important distinction to remember is that John did not say that this was the order that Jesus said everything would happen in. He was saying it was the order that he saw everything. He was, it was like he was taken around, he was saying, then I was shown this, then I was shown this. The book is what John saw. So this book's a letter, it's a blessing, and lastly, it's a warning. At the end of the book, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. We're supposed to take this book really, really seriously. So for us, maybe Revelation is not a crystal ball that tells us what our future is. Maybe it's not an escape plan. Maybe it's not a roadmap to the end times. Which means that at the beginning of all this, we asked the wrong question. Because we know that Revelation is not so much about how do I survive when it's the end of the world. The truth is that there's something deeper here for us. Our story about Pauline and her family running away from the mafia at the beginning of this talk actually isn't done. I didn't finish the story for you. See, as Pauline went along, she noticed that things weren't totally adding up. It, it was just weird things. Like she was told that there would be like body doubles who were in different scenarios in her life, like because people were in danger. So then instead of setting the actual person, there was like a, a secret group who would come and take that person and replace them with an actor. And sometimes these stories just seemed like a little bit far-fetched. It, it just seemed like it was too much. She was told that there was this whole secret network of people who were protecting her and her family from the mafia. And she was given like a, a, a pager basically. So if she was ever in danger in her car, she could just hit this. And she was told like, don't do this unless you're really in danger because people will drop everything and lay down their life for you. And then she was told that her mother was going kind of underground. She was going inside was what they called it to basically a, an off grid community where she could live and nobody would be able to find out where she was because she was totally off the map. And Pauline dealt with this for a few years, knowing that her mother was going to be going inside and eventually Pauline got married and the, the stress and the anxiety of people following her and thinking that she was trying to be poisoned all the time and, and all of these threats on her life made her and her husband decide that they were going to go inside as well. So she was told that they were going to build a cottage for her and uh, she just had to wait until it was built and then she could move into this community. And so her, uh, her, her mom's friend Stan would bring her like carpet samples and he would tell her all these things that were happening with the cottage and it, it just took a long time. And so she got suspicious. And I'm just going to read a passage from the article of what happened next. So Pauline was getting suspicious. So we called, she called her mom and she said, somebody's broken into my house. What should I do? Pauline's mother replied, I'll ask our friend and call you back. Stan had made it clear to Pauline and Ruth, Pauline's mom, that they must never go to the police to report any of the threats and strange goings on in their lives. The police, he said, couldn't be trusted. If there was ever any trouble, they should come to him and he would let them know if they got word of any plots that put them in danger. 
He had a special contraption implanted in his wallet for receiving messages. It would do a Morse code dash and dots message, and he would then take it and he would interpret it. Ruth called Paul back a few minutes later. I was terrified because it was the moment that I was going to get the answer to this horrible quandary that I'd been living with, she says. Ruth said she couldn't talk on the phone. Pauline must go to her house immediately. Once there, Pauline listened, horrified, as Ruth and Stan told her that two people had been picked up just down the street from her house earlier that day. They had photographs of her. They had been taken following her and were looking for certain things in her house. When she said that, I knew the whole thing was a hoax, Pauline says, because there had been no break-in. I made it up. That was the moment I knew all of those severed relationships, all the crazy running, all of the strangeness. It was all a lie. Her mother and Stan had earnestly told her that they were being chased by the mafia. But as Pauline dug into this, she found out that Stan actually had a, di a disorder where he would have these grand delusions. And for a long time, he had had this delusion. And he had convinced Ruth that this was all happening, but it was all in his head. And so Pauline had to break away from this lie. And she was free from the mafia, from running, because she realized that none of this was actually happening. I think Pauline's story reveals that sometimes the truth about a situation is so much simpler than it seems. She was seeing all kinds of signs and strange things. She had these windows into a life of running and trying to escape the mafia, but it never quite made sense. And she realized that the whole life that Stan had created for them was all a lie and all stemmed back to one man's delusions. Thankfully, revelation is not a delusion, but I wonder if maybe we're missing the point when we try to interpret it and we try to get into all the theories and the timelines and trying to figure out exactly what it's going to look like and who is going to be who in the story. And maybe there's just one thing we can take away from it. As we try to sort through all this confusing imagery and through all the signs and wonders of the book, what's one thing for us to take away from Revelation today? Let's take some hints from the first chapter here. Revelation 1, 17 to 18. When I, John, saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. So John not only heard a voice behind him causing him to turn to see this form of Jesus, who's looking more powerful and more amazing than ever, Jesus actually reaches out and touches him. For the first time in decades, John is seeing his old friend Jesus, who is now clothed as the high priest, as a risen king, as a symbol of a kingdom that would be everlasting, outlasting all of the kingdoms that reigned before and all of the kingdoms that would reign in the future. It's the victorious risen Jesus, and Jesus declares, don't be afraid, like so many other times that people encountered God in the flesh. And he goes on to say, I am the first and the last. It's a really interesting phrase. We read this and go like, okay, sure, Jesus is the king, but also servant first, last, and position. We got it. Let's look at the actual words he used. First was the word arc, like an archetype. 
Archetypes is like a model to follow. It's the first in a sequence, like a, a template or a mold. And so Jesus is saying, I am, I am the archetype for you to follow. He's, he's the archetype for us to follow. He's our ultimate example. For me and so many of us here, we have made him the archetype of our lives. We believe that the way he lived, the way he loved people, the way he showed grace to people is the highest standard for living here on earth. And what is our motivation for that? Daryl Johnson wrote this. We were made to live his way. Either we do or life does not work. At the heart of so much of our anguish is choosing to go away from or against him and his way. But Jesus' claim gives him tremendous hope. Jesus is going to have his way. Because everything begins in him and ends in him. Jesus is also the end. The word he used as last is telos. A telos is the final result of something. For example, take an acorn. What is the telos of an acorn? An oak tree. If everything goes well for that acorn, if it finds good soil, if it gets water and sun and often a few other acorns around it, it will one day be able to grow up into a beautiful and strong oak tree. So Jesus is the first of everything. He's our example and he is the last. He is the inherent destiny of all things. He is our destiny. Jesus Christ is your archetype and he is your destiny. He is the one who went before you and he is the one that you are headed towards if you so choose. So if this is how the book starts, and it's, it's repeated in the end, Jesus says he, he has this bookending phrases where it's Jesus the first and last, Jesus the first and last. So maybe this book is not an instruction manual to the end times. Maybe it's revealing to us that Jesus is the instruction manual to all of our lives. It's instruction manual on how to be a disciple of Jesus facing the harsh realities of life and of the end times. The revelation is what we're going to have to face in the end, but it also puts Jesus at the beginning and the end of it. And we know that through it all, through the Antichrist, through the mark of the beast, through the rapture, that Jesus will continue to be our high priest, our king, and our salvation. His work is signed, sealed, delivered, and it can be yours to receive. What's really beautiful is that we see all these battles in Revelation. But Jesus starts by saying, I have the keys to death and the grave. He's already holding the keys. He's already won. It's, it's done. Our salvation is secure in Jesus. So we can talk about Armageddon. We can talk about the devil being thrown into a lake of fire. We can talk about all of this, but we know Jesus is victorious. Jesus already holds the keys. And I believe that Revelation is not a call to cower and fear at the things to come or to get caught up in preparing for the end of the world or to decipher its deeper meanings and figure out what no one else has seen in it. I believe that Revelation is like an exclamation mark at the end of the Bible. It is one last reminder of all that we have been through in Scripture to remind us that Jesus is the risen King who is worth giving our lives to. And that there are signs and wonders and all kinds of mysteries to come, but our way to get through all of that is not to get lost in interpretations and theories, but it is to be reminded and encouraged that our victor 
is Jesus. Our Savior is Jesus. His promises are good. His faithfulness will endure and he will reign forever and ever. So for those of you who already know this, may it be a reminder and encouragement to you this week of how good your God is. And to those who are watching, who are searching, who are unsure, or who are trying to figure out what they think of Jesus, may this be an invitation to explore a little more, to put your trust in Jesus, and to take whatever next step you may feel is right. If you want to take a next step, you can message us. You can reply to this video, or you can go to our website and find the email of the pastor. Send us a message and tell us the next step you want to take today. What, what questions it is, what, what you may be looking to hear from Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about this. And I want to end our message today with this from the last chapter of the book, Revelation 22, verse 10 and 11. And then we're going to jump to verse 20 and 21. Don't seal the words of the prophecy of this book. Don't put it away on the shelf. Time is just about up. Let evildoers do their worst and the dirty-minded go all out in pollution, but let the righteous maintain a straight chorus and the holy continue on in holiness. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.